0: this is episode 34 the road not taken can you give me a little shortle I'll, I'll try my Bert lancaster
1: laugh <laughs> and then there's the richard winmark laugh when he tosses the old lady down the stairs
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh what a way to get levels We've got an in-depth interview today, so let's get right into it. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. You know, you're my most requested interview within all the people who've helped me do promotional stuff, all my friends that you've met throughout the years. They always say, Jack is such an interesting guy. You have to get him on the podcast. Who said that, Debbie? You remember Jessica when oh, she was helping Jessica. you with last generation yeah, and Jessica. And Josh loves working with you. Everybody's fond of you, Jack. <laughs> All of
1: two people. That's wonderful. <laughs> I brought some poetry that's not in the book. That was just kind of laying around that it hasn't really seen the light of day yet.
0: Fantastic. We also have one of your poems on our bonus material honor and glory well, bring your dog along we'll give him a bonus too <laughs> <laughs> we'll just play a, listen to this a little bit and then that'll open are people
1: up. listening now yeah we know I mean, all these one-liners are going for nothing
0: no they're getting <laughs> recorded right now
1: oh, okay i mean you know if they're just kind of going out there and nobody's hearing it i'd be so disappointed
0: <laughs> well maybe this isn't there we go
1: oh you got it
2: it's shot but we're so hot
1: Oh, you gotta finish it out. And if you like that, folks, we'll have sign-ups right after the show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Language of Creativity podcast today. My guest is Jack T. Layton, and what you heard was Sparky's Burgers. So, yeah. Jack, thanks for being here. Thank you for asking me, Mr. Levitt. So... I know you from coffee, really. We met at It's a Grind and Chris El Chico, who was on episode nine, who is now playing with the Boston Symphony. Wow. So, yeah, we did an interview about him auditioning for various orchestras around the world as a professional clarinetist. And he was trained by Bert Hara, who was the principal chair of clarinet at the Los Angeles Philharmonic. That's really nice. And, you know, kind of I knew him when, so... Maybe after this, people will know all about Sparky's Burgers. Well, one can only hope. So Sparky's Burgers was this session that we did from like going through your giant notebook. You have like a three inch thick notebook of lyrics.
1: It's only about an inch and a half, actually. You
0: exaggerate. It's, (laughs) It's very, very tall. And you came to me and you said, Steve, I have all these songs and I'd like to do something with them. And so we picked mostly jazz tunes out of your book and big band tunes and got a big band, well, little big band, and put them together in Burbank and did a recording session with the Satin Dolls, who originally wrote that piece to think of the Andrew Sisters. Andrew Sisters,
1: Sisters, yeah. Yeah. It was a little band, but it sounded awfully big. Well, now that you folks have heard that, uh, I think it came off pretty well and I just want to let you in the audience know that it wouldn't have happened except for this new young producer I happen to find. He happens to be sitting across from me right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to kind of go back into the history of Jack T. Layton, because you've been a creative, a poet a lyricist and songwriter for probably as long as you can remember. At what point did your poetry writing start? Like, did you have tunes that went with them? When did you really start? When I was in
1: third grade, I wrote something for the class paper relating to Halloween. And the only thing I remember was the title. And we didn't keep it. I don't remember what happened to it. But the title was Eek! (laughs) it's so descriptive and then when i got out of high school or i was in my last i'm trying to remember was i i graduated i guess i had just graduated high school in june of 67 and i met this little blonde it's always a blonde (laughs) and we were dating and she had some friends over to her house and I was meeting her parents and it was just such a nice feeling. It was like right before Christmas. And I wrote I think my first serious poem was called um, oh wow i may actually have it here somewhere. This lovely home. Should I? Yes. Okay. This is from just before Christmas in 67. This lovely home There is a home, a lovely home, of a family whose caring is ever shown. They share with all as from all they share. For this family is loved most everywhere. In this holiday peace that man creates, while in some parts peace will have to wait, there's a closeness here that is seldom ever found. And their sound of love is a blessed sound. So in dreams so sweet that light the hours, I think of the joys that transpired and when I'm far from the valley I roamed, all my dreams will be of this lovely home.
0: I could imagine the strings kind of, it's beautiful.
1: And of course, when I said the valley, I should have capitalized the whole thing.
0: That was your very first poem that you wrote.
1: That was, yeah, it was, it was like that first few months after I graduated high school when I wrote that. And That's beautiful. I, yeah. well, thank you.
0: You definitely have a way with words. Very surprised that that's your very first piece.
1: I was in a poetry society years ago, back in the 90s, with a bunch of very different people. And we operated out in Thousand Oaks, Conejo Valley stuff. And there used to be a Borders out there in the Thousand Oaks Mall, whatever they called it then. And we used to go there and have poetry readings once a month. And uh, it was probably about 10 of us on a good weekend. And somebody asked us, why do you write? How, how do you do this? Or even why do you do it? And basically, we write because we cannot stop. There's something within us that says, you got to put this on paper. You got to get this out because, you you know, it's bottled up inside you and you got to express it some way. And it's a lot more constructive than a rifle. And it's a way of sharing whatever you're going through with someone who might be going through the same thing. And or sharing something that's nice, might be delightful, or caring with someone who you care about. And that's always significant.
0: Yeah. And, you and I have talked a lot about the history of the valley. You grew up in San Fernando Valley, and it didn't used to look the way it does now.
1: Nothing looks the way it does now. My folks moved into the valley, I guess, let's see, around 1952 or three. So I was in elementary school during the 50s and junior high and high school during the 60s. So at the end of the 60s, at the tail end of the 60s, I was part of that generation that was getting lost finding themselves. And a lot of great bands, a lot of great music at that time.
0: This was when you were in the Late high 60s. Yeah. You, know, you go
1: to cruising down Sunset Boulevard and see all the incredible looking cars and gorgeous women or incredible looking women and gorgeous cars. Anyway, it was quite the thing. I don't, there were actually a few people who I talked to that said, remember this because it'll never be like this again. And they were right.
0: Who had the foresight to think that when you were going through it?
1: Just a couple of people, but they had been smoking so you know they were tapped in. <laughs> <laughs> they they were smoking these little curly cue kinds of things that you roll like a cowboy. And mm-hmm. uh, check this out, dude.
0: Yeah. The <laughs> 60s were so formative on American culture and pop culture throughout the world now. I mean, at this point, I mean your generation rebelled against the suits and the ties and the stiffs yeah
1: yeah and then i even had to put on a green pickle suit and go to strange exotic places and what was it there was something i saw u.s marines when you need to have something bombed before tomorrow
0: (laughs) (laughs) you were in the armed services
1: i was in the air force yes what years
0: did you serve
1: 69 to 73,
0: so
2: it
1: was at the tail end of the great experiment, but I was shot at by people to whom I'd never been formally introduced, not like in a bar or something. So you (laughs)
0: went to Vietnam?
1: I did go into Vietnam. Wow. I was a lot luckier than most of the guys that were in there. I was only in there a few weeks at a time, and it was very limited, but it was enough to pick up a few things to remember them by.
0: Did you actually receive a wound? No, 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 no. no. Mm -hmm.
1: They tried. Mm -hmm. They sure tried.
0: Definitely made an imprint on you.
1: Yeah, there's, we were coming out the tail end of a C-130 at the end of the runway, and there were a couple of those portable yellow marker lights on either side of the runway. And the 130 has a tail like like a whale fluke. And we were unloading all kinds of equipment, big equipment, uh, forklifts, Jeeps, things like that. And uh, I was by the dugout when all of a sudden we heard, whap, whap. These two mortars came through, rockets, whatever they were. And the C-130, whatever process they were in the middle of at that point, the ramp went up and they gunned their engines and got out of there real quick. And wow. when I got out of the airplane, I noticed how the, the tail was, like, just past the two lights on the runway. So when they took off and everything quieted down, those were the only two shots that were fired. But we waited to make sure that was it. Uh, me and my sergeant walked out to, the, to check the uh, runway. Both those lights were taken out on, wow. either, on either side. So. Those rockets straddled the airplane. Just missed you. Just, well, I wasn't by the airplane at Uh the time, but it could have taken the tail off that airplane. Wow. And only God was watching over these guys and they got out of there quick.
0: I think it would be a good moment to play your poem, Honor and Glory. So when did you write Honor and Glory?
1: So I got out of the Air Force in the middle of 73, and in the early part of 74, this fragment started running through my head, and I started playing with it, and the more I wrote, the more things would come to me until after about 45 minutes. The gist of it, the, the skeleton of it, and a lot of the phrasing were down on the page. Over the years, I've been playing with it, trying to make it a generic kind of an outlook rather than one specific account.
0: Could be any war or battle at any time.
1: Yeah, anything after the creation of Gunpowder. This is not a sword and shield type of poem. This is Gunpowder. Honor and Glory by Jack T. Layton. We're there. Projectiles from large enemy thunder tubes fly overhead, seeking some damage to do. Our war group enters the camp left to us, with once bright uniforms, covered with dust. The mounts are nervous, though protected by a rise, shielded from the fire as our columns arrive. Leadmen of packs hear from headmen of bands. There's no falling out! The column here stands! Tired men fall from our march in the sun. Comrades support them. There's no place to run. Lead men tell crew foremen, inspect warriors through. Chief warriors follow to ensure hearts stay true. Warm water is taken from bottles half-full while we all listen to the thunder tube duel. The longer the waiting, the tenser the nerves. Feeling on today's action, the conflict may turn. Our chief man is here to help form our line. Preparing the band line, he says we'll do fine. We're all made ready with skirmishers ahead The thought in our minds who will live or be dead. The thane of the war group arrives with his staff. We're put to attention to hear what he says. Friends, patriots, be proud on this morning. Our freedom now lies in your honor and glory. We fight to protect our families and homes. This is our duty, the only way shown. Our enemies enslave us, won't let us be. Fight for your freedom and destiny. Checking our arms, fire rods are readied with long blades attached to make them more deadly. Our lines are dressed as the thunder tubes stop. Then we hear, along the rise, the words,
2: Over the top!
1: Our line surges forward, scrambling over the rise, each of us praying to somehow just stay alive. How many more races across torn up ground? How many more lifetimes to waste as this now? Large thunder tubes take their toll once again. Turning up the ground in gray, frightened men. Struggling along, covered with dirt and sand. Praying not to step where projectiles might land. My mind stops, suspended as the inferno is seen. Trapped in this unreal nightmare of a dream. What have we done? What was our crime? Forced to pray for survival one more last time. Our foot bands head man, with banner unfurled, like a man possessed in an alien world, exhorting, cajoling, driving us all along. Just stop his dishonor, move forward, be strong. My mind clouds, past fights merge into one. All I know to live is keep moving and run. Looking back I see we're far less than before as projectile bursts engulf us once more. Littered around our broken mounts and men, I know I could never do this again. We near the trenches where our enemies lie, their headmen yelling while their wounded cry. Our thin line closes the space in between. The enemy's eyes are scared and mean. Their fire rod flashes quicken our pace, all locked together. In this deadly long race. The banner held in our headman's strong hands, he plants in the trench where others soon land. Our foot band enters, fighting eye to eye. The foes soon evicted, while many there die. The headman screams to gather a pursuit. We're all brought together to see the fight through. One frightened man panics. Crumbling to his knees. The rest start off as the enemy flees. Then a projectile burst knocks me to the ground. My mind's filled with haze, motionless but sound, trapped in my body as others pass by. I'm aware of life and afraid to die. I see in my haze the headman at bay, prodding the straggler to get on his way, yelling. Exhorting the same old story. Defend your country for honor and glory. With thunder Two bursts again overhead, I feel before long that I'll soon be dead. The scene with the headman's charge continues till a burst from a tube makes dust of their sinew. The smoke soon clears. Only crumpled bodies remain. Uniforms are shredded. The torn banner hangs. Battle sounds relent to stillness and calm. All the dust settles, and the conflict is gone. Then after a time, the war thane appears. Seeing the banner brings him close to tears telling an aide of the headman's brave run. Oh, to what cost such bravery is done. He gets two stretcher bearers to stop, to put the headman's remains there on top. Placing the banner over the body once brave, they carry it back to a fine hero's grave. Unknown to them, though, well, I could see. The bodies having fallen so close to me. Taken was the straggler in mistaken hurry to fill in for the heroes honor and glory.
0: It occurs to me that the role of art, artists in society, is to challenge and move society forward in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And to maybe connect with the broader population in a way that's a tad subversive, maybe like a tad unexpected and certainly true with lyrics. I mean, if you think of popular songs, most people aren't thinking about what they're singing, but somehow the most influential music of our culture has been very challenging of the norms. Certainly true of the sixties. I mean, the sixties anti-war movement, counterculture, the drug movement, a lot of things that people really didn't like (laughs) in mainstream society, but the music is now on popular radio and at the mall and (laughs) in the elevator. I don't think the poetry
1: and the lyrics necessarily create the movement. I think it reflects what's going on in the society at the moment, and that's what creates the desire to write about it. People are influenced by what they go through in their daily lives, whether it's justice or injustice or love or lack of love broken love and my dad used to say jack why don't you write about something that's happy all the stuff you write about <laughs> it's oh my god i'm falling apart my what's her name doesn't whoever she happens to be a b c d f
0: <laughs> francine
1: <laughs> we landed
0: yeah. at francine
1: g of none of the above genie and uh You're only writing about, all that's wrong. Why don't you write a happy song? And I'm going, well, Dad, you know, when I'm happy, I don't feel like writing. I'm doing something. I'm doing something happy. And I'm out being happy with my friends and going places, and I don't have time to write when I'm happy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So for you, writing is an outlet.
1: Absolutely.
0: As a young man coming back from Vietnam... Did you move back to the valley? Yeah, I was, you know, I grew up in the valley.
1: I went to Reseda High School in the left center of the valley, Reseda. And, oh, when I went to Reseda High School, man. Car clubs, you had uh, cruising the boulevard, Van Nuys Boulevard. Some people went down into Hollywood to cruise over there in Sunset and Hollywood Boulevard. Everybody loved to go to Bob's Big Boys, Yeah, which from that song, Sparky's Burgers, jumps out.
0: I believe we went to Bob's after the Sparky's Burgers recording session.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. The one and only that's left out of the many.
1: Yeah. The one in Toluca Lake has long been a magnet for car clubs and such.
0: So very different. In high school, car clubs, these are the golden days. And then you come back from Vietnam. What's that like?
1: I just wanted to take a nap. I just wanted to go to sleep for a little bit. And I I did for, or let's see, I got out in July. In October, I went to Europe. I was supposed to go with a friend of mine from New York, but I could never get a hold of him. And I'd reach into my pocket and there wasn't any cell phone there. <laughs> so I don't know what I was reaching for. And so I couldn't get a hold of this guy. And I said, well, I'm going to go by myself. And I did. And my family thought I was completely nuts because you're going to Europe by yourself? And I'm going, <laughs> yeah. And he says, who do you know there? And I said, oh, um, nobody.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I had an aunt who ran a travel agency and she got me set up with a Eurail Pass and an ID card for youth hostels, so that in every major town there's a place to go. You have your backpack and sleeping bag, and so you got to change your clothes and find places where you can wash every couple of months. And uh,
0: <laughs> so you just, smelled like a hippie. Did you look like a hippie <laughs> at this point?
1: <laughs> I yeah, I'd allowed my hair to go long and my beard to come out, and got my passport and. When people looked at my picture, they said, oh, you're a history professor. And said, no, I'm just a student. <laughs> One of the things about traveling at that period in October of 73 was that was the date of the October War, the Yom Kippur War in Israel. And there were a lot of cities in Western Europe like Brussels and Paris that as I got to these places, the palestinians would be having marches and demonstrations
0: uh, wow. for
1: their cause against the israeli army saying that you know we deserve our rights in fact i had a run in with some palestinian students at a beer hall kind of thing that was run by the university in heidelberg and it was kind of interesting because my german wasn't my two years of german didn't really didn't get me over entirely and these guys were complaining and then they started complaining in English as well and then I let it slip that I had been in the service and they were really coming on me at that point I thought we were going to have some mishaps and then this big American fellow stepped in who knew these guys and said you boys always better go someplace else and handle it and then we went through the usual thing I said you're American and says you're American and I said, uh, from the sound of your voice, you sound like California. He says, and so do you. And I'm going, L.A. He says, L.A. Wow. All right. Now we have the the big test. Okay. Where you? I'm from the valley. And he says, well, so am I. Where in the valley? The San Gabriel Valley. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just kind of off on the 210 somewhere. That's, they're not the Valley. Not the real Valley. <laughs> not the Valley. No, that's right. You can watch Johnny Carson anytime. And he said, Well, when we were living out in the Valley,
2: <laughs>
1: we know which the real one is. Heading north on the 405, breaking out from Sepulveda Pass. It's 5 o'clock and the summer's bright, and we're nearing home at last. The kid's fast asleep in his car seat, my wife's right there by my side. I'm feeling tired from a long hard drive, heading north on the 405. Passing under the 101 with traffic merging from the right, a light brown sedan pulls alongside and I get a marvelous sight. I looked right over at the driver, it felt like we'd already met. With soft brown eyes and champagne hair, she had beauty one never forget. I held my speed to stay alongside Her luscious lips and beaming eyes And I got lost in a fantasy drive Heading north on the 405 405, 405 Heading north on the 405 We were traveling well apace now Slow as traffic, picking north But I meant to get her measure To live this moment for all it's worth We cruised on north past Roscoe Still traveling side by side Her head then turned to face me And I got lost in her eyes Our eyes locked on for a moment Thoughts of pasts and futures when A lust sparked on in an instant Could burn to its fiery end My wife started conversation On matters related to speed My eyes were looking beyond her At the eyes then looking at me This lovely sight came alongside Her luscious lips and burning eyes And I got lost in her truth and lies Heading north on the 405 405 When I tripped into this poetry society, it, it became a major thing in my life because you have like-minded people who like to express themselves. And we were always trying to recruit people to come in and give their points of view because with a poet, you want to steal from the best. <laughs> what do you mean by <laughs> steal? Every, everybody's got a certain voice. Uh-huh. And after a certain amount of time we tend to get in certain ruts.
0: Definitely. I've noticed that with music writing.
1: Especially in music. I I remember reading about Johnny Mercer where he was always afraid he'd be copying himself.
0: Yes, I've noticed that with popular artists. I hear album three, four, you start to hear certain things that they certain do, little phrasing. ditties. Yeah. yeah, certain phrasing, certain lyrical ideas and melodic twists.
1: Or chord, yeah. yeah. Chord signatures and such, where you start to parody a, yourself. That, that's just like uh, what you did five yeah. years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be careful on that. You want to be able to break into new ground. So we were always appreciative of new poets, younger poets coming in and just taking advantage of of their different perspective about what was going on, their style. Right. I had a friend who had a very humorous, poetry style that in one poem I tried to duplicate it. I don't think I came close. A Taste of Seduction, dedicated to David Allen Foster. He lives up north. I don't know if you'll ever hear this. He's up in the Bay Area, but... Anyway, thought I'd go out for a taste of seduction, with some passion on the side. Guilt and regret I'd forget, in that doggy bag to go. On further reflection, illicit love, though on the menu, I can't quite digest. Other rich dishes, like half-baked sex and steamy affairs, are out of my budget. Better I stay home than become some fast fool.
0: You know, that reminds me of how much of a romantic you are. I think of conversations we've had where you bring up romantic crushes that you had, you know, various hints in your poetry where you definitely are a lover at heart. And that's maybe it heavily influences your poetry. I want to talk about that.
1: Well, Things that have to do with passion and caring and being accepted. I think, well, that's, that, that's hard stuff. That's hard stuff. But what do we look for? We want to be accepted for who we are. We have passion for somebody. And the problem is we see them in a, a refined light that doesn't necessarily give us the correct vision. You know, every, everything is idealized. And if things are working right, you're being idealized too. Very true. I I think there's something about the hormones that the way humanity was set up, you know, for whatever, six months, two months, six weeks, whatever, a couple of nights after the bar, you know, you just see this other person being, whoa, I want to partake of this.
0: Sort of pulls the wool over your eyes. Truly. Yeah.
1: Truly. And then sometimes... The night after or a few weeks after or or whenever things are codified, you realize this, that's not the person I fell in love with. Who are you? You're just that person who has to clean the bathroom and put their clothes on the regular way. What happened to that person that was so sparkly and everything? Oh, my God. And then they look at you going, oh, shit. Here's your hat. Don't let the door close on you as you're leaving
0: well that part lays perfectly into the idea of heartbreak which you said you were inspired by or you like to write when things were painful and not so much when they were happy so you obviously have a number of poems and songs about heartbreak well Uh, one of the one that makes me think of is the duet that you did with desiree oh
1: yeah right um I've got something. I want to put that on reserve for a second. I've got something you want to hear. The
0: poem the po- okay, so the the how about longings? Oh, public. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we're there yet either. We we you might You don't want to get there yet? We're, well, we are not in the moment for it, but if you want to switch to that, we could. Um This is tra- I want to hear somewhere else to yeah. get you there. All right. All right. So so oh. one second. So okay. all right, so obviously. I think most people can relate to growing up in a family that says, why would you consider going to Europe by yourself? How come you just can't write happier songs? And I know that that's been very, you you know, you said it it was very helpful to get into a group of other poets who were expressing themselves. And so obviously you, we've all experienced family members or colleagues or whatever who just don't get. Why we create or what it is that we're doing uh, or why we would do it, why we would need to do it. Why can't you just get a real job, Jack?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, dad. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, and you did get some real jobs. We can talk about that too, but I want to speak to that for a moment.
1: You know, it's funny th- I've had jobs that I had to take that I was in for extended periods Of years that uh, I actually wanted to become an actor I went to five acting schools along the way
0: I did not know that
1: and at different times I didn't stay in them for more than a few months at a time because I would run out of money but I tell you if you want to go to therapy that's the place to do it it I think they work far better than group therapy in a normal sense you get into an acting school in classes where you're working off of people and you're having to delve into who you are to become whatever character happens to be. Oh yes. Because one of the nice things about it is you can do things there you're not allowed to do in normal society. You can't get away with murdering people uh, in a, you know, in In a a real
0: setting, but in improv class, or, or in group group therapy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, in group therapy, you can't do that, but in acting classes, you can take scenes from anything and work it out in a, you know, however appropriately you can and really get into it. And huge therapy, wonderful stuff, because, In acting classes, they want to break you down just like any Marine uh, D.I. Um, Oh, really? We want you, you know, we're going to wipe away all of whatever it was you were when you came in. All Uh, your defense
0: mechanisms, everything.
1: Right. And you come in here and, you know, you're going to be the character, whatever you're working on here. And hopefully you've managed to memorize your part and you're not going to trip over the furniture and do something interesting. The thing is, to be a decent, creditable, creditable? Creditable. Credible. Credible.
0: That's another one
1: of those words. Yeah. That uh, you have to do something a little surprising here and there so that you put your stamp on it. So it's not just somebody blending into the, wallpaper you have to surprise people
0: almost still the show but in a appropriate
1: yeah degree yeah i mean you actors a certain percentage i don't know what the percentage is you know are very good looking they fall out of magazine ads wearing and smoking and doing whatever driving everybody loves to look at them but That doesn't make you an actor. You know, a lot of it, it's just these people who always play the heavies and stuff, how crazy they get. Because they know that you're not going to remember them if they're just, I'm just the heavy here in the Bronx. They need to get a little crazy for you. Oh, wow, I saw that guy on whatever that show was. And wow, they just stood right
0: out. So The guy with it, or like Johnny Trejo, where he's got that big scar across his face and everything he does, he could just stand there and... Oh, dang, that dude looks mean. You know, it's funny about riding.
1: I saw a movie years ago with uh, Paul Newman, Tran Woodward, Robert Wagner. I think it was called Racing, where Wagner and Newman are partners in a racing team, car racing team, on a track, not Le Mans style, you know, but you know, on a track, whatever. Anyway, in the course of the movie, there was one setup where they've got the race the next day, Newman is checking out the car, Wagner goes back to the motel, and Newman is crossed between his car and romancing Joanne Woodward, and he finally, in the early hours, finishes with the car, he's only got a chance for a couple hours sleep before the race, goes back to the apartment, the room, and there's Wagner with Joanne Woodward in bed. Uh oh. The thing was, there's no dialogue. It was all facial expressions. Whoa. And Newman went through about three or four different flashes of discovery, of hurt, of anger, of complete, you know, dissolution with this woman who he finally found someone who he wanted to share with and then discussed and just shook his head and went out the door. Not a word between anybody. Wow. That was one of the most perfect scenes I've ever seen in a movie.
0: I bet I could look it up on YouTube that someone's probably vignetted that scene. Yeah. You know, yeah. I thought it was amazing how they put that together. So you had a series of J-O-Bs jobs. That's what I call anything that's not like a job that's working you toward what you really want to do. But you, you were a postal carrier. You were a prop master.
1: Um, no, no, I wasn't a prop master. When I got out of the service, my dad had a connection with the guy who ran the storeroom at what they called at that time, the Burbank Studios, which was Warner Brothers. They were renting out most of their lot and it uh, had an, oh, this is back in the mid seventies and they had, so the Burbank studios controlled the lot and you had a lot of independent companies coming on like Lormar, you know. The, yes. And whoever wanted space and a lot of TV and they were there coming and going and Warner's had their half of the lot, which is always there. And then after about 20 years or so, they got tired of that. And uh, Warners took over again. So now the whole place is Warner Brothers. But at that time, it was the Burbank Studios. And I got a job in what they called the storeroom. And they had supplies. They had hardware supplies for the guys in construction. They had special effects. We had lighting equipment for the guys and for lighting, big bulbs and stuff. We had stationery for the offices. We had makeup for everybody in the makeup departments. And what happened here is that a lot of these guys in these departments would send their assistants to pick up supplies. But every once in a while, the heads of the departments would come by because they needed to stretch their legs. And says, well, we need such and such. I'll go get it myself. And I got to meet all these heads of departments. Oh, wow. And that was interesting. And I have to admit something here that I kick myself every day. The head of the camera department came by and offered me a position as, oh, what do you call it when you're not being paid? An intern? An intern to clean camera lenses and and put film in for tomorrow's camera usage. Wow. And I didn't take it. Wow, That would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars a year 20 years later. And I was too involved in partying or whatever, you know, or just working my own eight hours. And uh, a few weeks later, I heard that one of the guys from the mailroom had taken it. And 10 years later, I saw his name as director of photography.
0: Oh, my gosh. On
1: a TV show.
0: Whoa. Talking uh, about parallel lives. Oh,
1: well, huh? <laughs> talk about the road not taken. How old were you? 20, early twenties.
0: Yeah. We make a lot of mistakes 20, in early twenties. Don't
1: 20, we? 24, 25,
0: something like that. Wow. Oh man.
1: Yeah. So a year or so after that, I spent four years in the storeroom and then I got into set construction, which was a $2 raise immediately. And I did that from seventy eight till ninety two something like that. And then a lot of the work was going out of town,
0: yeah. everything started going to Canada, yeah, at one point,
1: can anywhere across the country, they'd take key personnel and then Florida. Hire, and then hire locally, for, yes, yeah,
0: yeah. I remember that period of time in my parents' career. It seemed like the work was drying up in Los Angeles, yeah. Yeah.
1: One really important thing that I so appreciate when I got into the union in 78 was the medical. It was at the best point ever. And I was able to get the best medical because since then, after the 90s, it was just blah. It was just for you. It wasn't for your family. Right. And uh, since not later in my life, I started to have medical problems. The people who come to you in the ERNs Say, let me see your card. And they check it out. and it's, Oh, my God. This is some of the best medical there is. <laughs> I'm going, thank you, movie studios.
0: That's Yeah, that's something a lot of us creatives don't have is medical insurance. Now, you told me about a song that you wrote around the time that a production was happening on the lot. And you were thinking about walking over and handing it to one of the music directors of the day.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, Ziegfeld.
0: That's it. Oh, God, gee, Z, where does that come in? X, Y, Z. So before you read O. Ziegfeld, explain who O. Ziegfeld was, or what what movie was that? I I don't remember.
1: Florence Ziegfeld was a Broadway producer from the 1900s, early 1900s into, I guess, the early 1930s. I think he died, I don't remember, 1940-something. So, boy, I feel it. I had a loss here. I don't recall the...
0: But it was a movie that was being made on the lot, right? There was
1: a movie being made in, in 74 about his life and loves. And loves. I remember one of, the, one of his loves... Plural,
0: were... lots of S's at the end.
1: Yeah, lots of actors. One of his loves was being played by Valerie Perrine, which in 74 was one of the hottest actresses there were. And I would sneak over and watch the filming on my lunch break trying to keep as nonchalant and demure as possible, fading into the woodwork while watching all (laughs) the action. That was one wonderful thing about being in the storeroom back then from 74 to 78 was I'd get a lunch break and go go walk onto these stages and watch them film some of the biggest stars there were. Wow. I was over there. um, Stage 16 was right next to us. And that's one of the sets for The Shootist, uh, John Wayne and, uh, and uh, really? James Stewart. Wow. You know, on stage 16, they had the, the saloon set. And uh, I was able to go over there. And Hugh O'Brien and um, Richard Boone, I guess, was also there. They they're still rehearsing for the shot. And I remember... Seeing John Wayne and Mike Frankovich, the producer, outside the door of the stage, talking to some friends, I think, of Frankovich as he was introducing them to Duke Wayne. And that guy was huge. He was tall and big. Who? Uh, John Wayne. Wayne, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, holy cow. Yeah, he could have been a halfback for SC. Uh-huh. But he hurt himself at the beach. <laughs> and screwed up his back, showing <laughs> off
0: for the ladies. So. Yeah,
1: he was, yeah, he, sc- he screwed himself up and he couldn't play ball. He was on a scholarship to SC. huh And then that went away. Wow. So he ended up being a prop man in the studios and ended up meeting
0: John Ford. So and when John Ford said, "Would you like to intern?" he said, "Yes, I do." Yeah. <laughs> I should have remembered. Foolish me. So, okay, so you're on the set looking in on this actors and O. o- Ziegfeld is shooting, right? And,
1: oh, yeah, and I'm looking at Valley Perrine and all and the host of other ladies, and I'm going, I've got an idea floating through my head for a song. And the point of view of the song is an ingenue trying to nose her way into the theater where Zigfield is hiring. And there's a tune to go with
0: this. Yeah, sing it. Sing it. Yeah, or read it and sing it. What do you think? Uh, I'll do both. Let's let's <laughs> let's hear read first, and then I want to hear how you put it to melody because this has been an interesting little side conversation. Well, a lot of this stuff comes
1: at the same time. Some people ask, "What comes first, the tune or the words?" Yes. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's the tune. Sometimes it's the words. Sometimes they come at the same time. That uh, it's the tune that drives the words, and vice versa. You just never know. Let's hear it. So the lead-in is, Grandma used to tell me a Broadway long ago how she got her chance to sing and dance with the very best of shows by singing. Oh, now you got to remember, this is an ingenue, not some old fart like me. This is <laughs> like Liza Minnelli in her prime. Who,
0: yeah. Who would you cast... Who's your cast these days? Uh, probably Zoe Deschanel or someone like that. Oh, I love Zoe. Yeah. She,
1: she's beautiful. Oh, Ziegfeld, Flo Ziegfeld, remember me. I am the one you saw in that show called Gay Perry. You promised me a big part in your show at the Winter Garden. But winter's come, and I am still in the cold. Oh, Ziegfeld, Flo Ziegfeld, please look at me. I've got the charm and talent you know they want to see. You promised me all Broadway, a show on the great white way. But shows have come and gone, and I'm still alone. Oh, how my mother'd be proud, no longer just one of the crowd, seeing me walk out on the stage to the audience's cheers and raves. Oh, Ziegfeld, Flo Ziegfeld, I'm here at last. I'm here to take my place in the ranks of your great cast. I'm here ready to swing in. When are we going to begin? Mr. Ziegfeld, let's get on with it. Mr. Ziegfeld, let's get on with it. Mr. Ziegfeld, let's get on with the show.
0: Bravo. (laughs) Wow, I don't think I've heard that song that way. That's with the music and the story. It makes sense to me. I think if I had just heard the lyrics read without... The background, I wouldn't have understood, but the music producer in me is busy arranging all the parts, and I hear the, the almost late, you know, later vaudevillian, like, da, da 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 kind of, yeah, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, he uh, took advantage of vaudeville. Fanny Bryce and a lot of people like that, Eddie Cantor, yeah, they were all on his,
0: W.C. Fields, they were all on his stages. And you know, that would be perfect for Zoe. Perfect. So you wrote this song, and you were hoping to give it to the musical director over... So I went over
1: there, and I found an assistant director, producer, person. I said, I've got this lyric and song that would was inspired by your movie. I was wondering if you've locked in all your stuff, whether you had room for it. And she said, well, we have, actually. And I said, well, can I just sing it for you so you can get an idea with her? You might want to bump something," she said. "Well, we can't really. Uh, you don't even want to hear. It. No, no. And I never got any further.
0: Oh no. And I did it just for them. Those gatekeepers. That's right. They're very powerful, and she oh. was probably like very underpaid and not that oh, important. Well, she
1: got paid quite a bit, from I could tell from what she was wearing. But well, was she
0: is she was an as assistant or yeah? So yeah,
1: some executive assistant on the
0: yeah. Thing. But yeah, it controls the flow of the who, who gets we're, in we're and who doesn't.
1: Far, we're too far along now to change anything.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because that's what I noticed when we met and you said, hey, I want to show you my notebook. And I noticed that there were hundreds of poems that many of them, you said, let me sing you the tune. And I said, well, these tunes got to get down. You know, when you played Sparky's Burgers for me, I'm like, well, that's I can totally hear Andrew's sisters on that. Oh, yeah. And at that point, I don't think you recorded Sparky's Burgers. I know you had done some work with Chris, your Ranger, yeah,
1: Chris Glick.
0: Chris yeah. Glick is Wonderful incredible guy. yeah. And so he did the notation for some of your other tunes that were on your first album. So I said, all right. well, we gotta pick. Sort of the cream of the crop and get a style because I know you write a lot of different styles and let's get some of these down. And so we did. We kind of went through and picked Sparky's Burgers and about four other songs to get in the style of sort of a jazzy big bandy. What would you say, like 1940s to 1950s or 1930s to 1950s well, kind are you of talking style? About sparkies talking about the
1: Sparky's. Talking about the
0: Clear Lake Sessions. When we, oh. those songs probably fit between somewhere between Sinatra and the Andrews Sisters, right? And so, Nelson yeah. Riddle and.
1: 40s and 50s, I guess, would probably be the yeah. closest thing for it, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, just to pick something cohesive that the band could play that we could consider releasing as a collection, you know, and also to kind of backbone the production of it so it was all the same style so that the band could just knock through them one after the other, which was really fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, uh... <laughs> we could have stayed there a week.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have so many songs. I think we could have just kept going through your charts. And, you know, I I remember a lot about that session. It was a lot of work on the front end. It was really fun doing it. And I remember very stressful for you because it was expensive. We hired real union players and we had to sign off on the union sheet and the time cards and everything like that to get the kind of players that we wanted to get. Well, and, we needed
1: good people That's, and we got them.
0: Yeah, and it's including <laughs> including your cousin Alan right. Kaplan, who's actually a first call session trombonist and is got this great cameo in the movie Airplane.
1: <laughs> well, from behind you hear him, you don't see him.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, but that was one of the coolest parts. Was that Alan had no idea when I hired him that he was showing up in a session for you Jack and so
1: I had no idea I had anything to do with it
0: (laughs) so that was part of the setup like we didn't tell him and we had the cameras rolling and then there's this moment where he's sitting down looking at the music and getting his mouthpiece screwed in and everything like that and suddenly you walk up and you say hey do you notice who wrote whose name is on the paper (laughs) Right, <laughs> he freaked out. It was it was one of the best.
1: Yeah, one that, of the
0: funnest moments. That was cool. Yeah, I, I, I liked that. But six months before that, we were going to do the session, and you almost didn't make it to the session. No, I my heart
1: decided to uh, go in a separate direction from me.
0: You had a heart attack. I
1: had a heart attack.
0: Wow. And so, I mean, it was, that was one of the things about the second attempt at the session was knowing what a going for broke moment that was for you, doing something that big. What made you want to do something like that? Like Sparky's Burgers, you know, what made you... Well, it's
1: like, it's, it's like, why do you write? You know, you have to get it out there. Yeah. You have to see what it's supposed to look like. And Sparky's, well, you know, we talked about it then. It just called out, it needed to be done a particular way. And this was an Andrew Sisters kind of thing. We needed to get the satin dolls in there to give it that feel. And they did a wonderful job.
0: The satin dolls do this retro pinup post-war kind of, or mid-World War II style USO tour act. Mm And they have these really brilliant singers. They dress up. They sing beautifully, and they dance, and they do the whole number. So somehow we got them to agree to be on your session. I remember they kept calling me saying, "Now, what is this for? Now, what now, who is it? Where is this going? <laughs> because I don't think they really could understand that, yeah, I, I told them this is for a man who's a really good writer. And, it's a bucket list thing. He wants to do it to get it out there, you know, because I think they <laughs> they were wondering why there wasn't more money in it. What do but... you call it? A novelty? I don't know. Well, yeah. And it's interesting because I, obviously the song nails it and it has, I, I picked it because it has sync potential. Like it's the kind of thing if someone were looking for an in the style of commercial mm-hmm. where it wasn't owned by, you know, the copyright wasn't owned by the big three yeah. um, that they could use it and it would sound period tight. And looking through your works and your oeuvre, it was like, okay, well, you're a writer first. So let's get your writing out there to the music community. So in the places where they do license and cover, how can we get people to cover your material? We actually, one of the songs, Longings, that we released a music video for, I know you originally kind of wrote, thinking of, um, you had... uh,
1: Oh, Tony Bennett.
0: Yeah, Tony Bennett in mind for that. Yeah. Which is very interesting because Tony just finished his farewell tour and he's dealing with the memory issues. Yeah. Yeah.
1: One of the things, when I finally get a tune started, I'll picture in my mind, okay, what artists am I thinking of here when I'm thinking that as I'm growing this? And a lot of times it'll be Tony Bennett or Nat King Cole or Sinatra or or Dean Martin or something, and the phrasing is affected. How do I phrase this line? How would they do it? And how is the tune adjusted for their style? And that all comes into it all at once. You kind of blend it with everything else that's going
0: on. Tell me a little bit about the writing of Longings. What inspired that?
1: I was uh, hanging out at this office one evening with my friend David Allen Foster. He had to finish up some work. We were going to go grab a bite to eat. And he was on his computer, and he had the radio on. And I think they had Tony Bennett just finish. I left my heart in San Francisco. Mm. And with him in my thoughts, I started writing Longings. I stole a piece of paper and started jotting down some notes, set up the rhyme sequence, and started working on it not a maybe a half hour to an hour to get most of it down. I have longings, they try to humble me. Gorgeous ladies dressed for spring, hot jazz and symphonies. Roller coaster rides, white wine just slightly dry, an appetite I can't hide, fast cars I love to drive, I have longings, oh what they put me through, but the greatest of them all is for you.
0: If you want to see an example of some of the work my company is able to produce, check out the video for Longings, linked in the show notes. Now back to my interview with Jack Layton. I had to adjust
1: a couple of things here and there later on, which always happens. I don't know very often where anything is perfect the first time out. It does happen once in a while. But depending on how long it is. But it's not how good a writer you are. It's how good a rewite Rewiter? Rewriter. re-writer. <laughs> how many drafts you go through?
0: Uh, how good <laughs> of a highlighter
1: you are. <laughs> it's really? You know, I mean, I've had, even with uh, Honor and Glory, which I mostly had down in 74, I was still trying to make changes just before we did the recording.
0: I remember that. And I'm like, Jack, yeah. don't change that part. So, it's already good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I know how to make Stephen crazy real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so, okay. So let's go back in time to that last year at the studio. And you were about to share a poem about getting shit can basically. It's like a, a very satirical piece on Office Life that you've somehow woven into the end of the doomsday scenario. The doomsday thing. Oh, my God. So what happened, first of all? So when did you stop working at the studios? It was the work had slowed down and there was was leaving town. L.A. was drying up.
1: So, yeah, around 92 was it for me in the studios. And I had gotten married in 84. 86, 82. <gasps> I got married in 82. Oh, well, that's when that happened. <laughs> you know, my son was born in 86. So my wife and I had four years together before my son arrived in a cab. And
0: uh, Wait, he was born in a <laughs> cab or?
1: No. No. Anyway, the stork. He was born young. The <laughs> stork brought his chuggy bee little body down through the fireplace, through the chimney. <laughs> there was this big fat man in the way and he couldn't get through anyway yeah i was working through the studios off and on as it turned out later on because the work was becoming more fluctuated and towards the 90s and finally it petered out for me so in 2000 i wrote this thing called judgment day will be friday judgment day will be friday this establishment will be open half day only All employees wishing time off are asked to submit in writing any requests no later than two days prior. If possible, an alternate to cover your position should be designated. Pay will be straight time and the usual overtime bonus of the 3% cost of living differential. All time off will be taken from vacation time, if available. Otherwise, it will be counted as a non-pay day. Paychecks, usually available at the end of shift on Friday, due to a glitch in the computer system, will be mailed out instead. We are confident in the assurances of the post office that service will continue in its normal, efficient manner. Since it is expected to be a light volume day, the dress code will be relaxed. All wishing to bring in a potluck lunch are heartily encouraged. In case of emergencies, questions and suggestions may be left on the executive voicemail. Your input is important to us. A response may be made in an appropriate and timely fashion. If there is need for personal consultation, however, management will not be available good luck and best wishes thank you for your continued support
0: (laughs) that's fantastic when did you write that
1: 2000 uh y2k yeah it was 1101 it wasn't it was later in the year uh november 7.
0: right wow
1: (laughs) yeah I was thinking of John Cleese for that one.
0: Yes, I could hear that now that you say that. Shouldn't have given it away.
1: Yeah, I love that guy. He was an amazing writer.
0: There's a problem with this parrot.
1: <laughs> God. The, the, no, there's not. The Department of Funny Walks.
0: Oh, the, the Ministry of Silly Walks. Oh, God. Oh, wow. John Cleese. Yeah. Talk about standout, off the wall. God.
1: Those guys are just amazing.
0: Monty Python's Flying Circus was incredible, but
1: it, it shows you the facility of having a lot of people working on one thing at one time. You can get the freedom to just be crazy, to be completely off the wall.
0: And now for something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and weren't they funded by Pink Floyd? How's that? So, apparently, Holy Grail was made in part because Pink Floyd had just made so much money that they funded the movie. Really? Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I, I've heard it multiple times. Wow.
1: I'm going to have to let them know I'm here.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, because that's the thing about movie making It's a very collaborative endeavor. Yep. And music... Maybe used to be. I mean, when they used to have the big bands that would travel with 45 people, you'd have the big band leader who was the celebrity and music got smaller and smaller. And I think it, even after 2000, you know, everything became very individual and everyone's an island. And you're, you're not an instrumentalist, so you rely on others to yeah, get your I'm, musical I'm ideas stuck. out.
1: I'm not rich and I'm not an instrumentalist, so I can't sit on a stage and play guitar
0: and you don't and not, fit in a cocktail dress either.
1: That wouldn't work either. <laughs> but it would get attention. It would. It would definitely get attention. Maybe I'm going the wrong way in this. I don't know. <laughs> a, a cocktail. With my figure, though, it would, it would be a bermoose or... A muumu. <laughs> yeah, a muumu. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about how sometimes romances can go wrong yes uh after my divorce and i'd gotten a job out in ventura lovely ventura in the post office i worked out there for five years and i met a lady one of the first heavy romances i had after my divorce so this is like taking the small broom and dustpan and picking up my heart and and trying again and to see how that goes and that didn't work out that was the month of july only it's from july 1 to july 31 of 97 something
0: oh my gosh you remember the dates
1: well it was a crazy july anyway and afterwards i wrote this it didn't go well this is a public service announcement never have I before been the cast-off lover of a congenital nymphomaniac it is of interest to note that the stress on bodily functions can be extreme. Given that, this passion that could and would have caused spontaneous combustion is now relegated to 18 years of blue balls and cold showers. Overwhelmed by my desire for revenge, I am in dire need of Kevorkian mercy being unable in my heart and soul to be lightly used in a casual way. Whether tis nobler to accept in stride my pain, hunt down the demon witch with a wooden stake for her heart, or rent a stirring billboard at the corner of Palm and Main as a warning to other would-be seducers, in the end I would like to categorically state, Dearest Marguerite, Your loving Faust is waiting in the furnace with open arms. And there it is.
0: Wow. It must have broke your heart. No. (laughs) It's things like that that you can't just talk about, but somehow when you write it in a poem, it's hysterical. It
1: lets it out and it makes you feel better afterwards.
0: So, okay, your divorce. I know you don't like to talk about it because, for fear of it, you know, getting back in some way. But you, what can you tell me about that? Because that obviously had a big impact.
1: Uh, it was during this period that I wrote "We Were Once," and that okay. was what kind of put the bow on that one. I kind of wrapped it up, you know, emotionally. Yeah. And uh, and I'm glad we were able to get my friend Desi Ray to sing on that.
0: Now "We Were Once" is written as a duet.
1: Written as a duet,
0: and it's between two former lovers, partners, and partners. There's a chance meeting.
1: When I was writing it, I was thinking of Dolly Parton and and uh, Mister Rogers.
0: What is Dolly Parton and Mister Rogers? Kenny Rogers. Oh, Kenny Rogers. Okay, that's a different picture. <laughs> I couldn't think of Kenny. I couldn't <laughs> think of his name. That would be a great musical mashup, though. Dolly Parton and <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Rogers. It, doesn't that just...
1: <laughs> <laughs> that And Big Bird.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so you wrote it with Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers in mind. So, right. But it, it's not country. It's more jazz, I would say. Or at least the way we did it. I just...
1: Look at it as being a ballad. Yeah. Um yeah, a lot of stuff I don't necessarily I mean, the stuff I write, it can go either way, country or or straight or jazz. Just depends on who wants to do it.
0: So before I play the song, tell me a little bit more about was this an actual thing that happened running into or this was an imagined it was an imaginary thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because we had two children, I would have to visit my ex-wife occasionally to go over things that were happening with them. Right. But uh, in this case of the song, there's no mention of children. It was like they hadn't seen each other for a good long period. And all of a sudden, oops, oh, well, hello. Well, hello. How long has it been? don't seem to know where to begin. Never thought we'd be this way. Thinking back, it's like yesterday. We were once walking hand in hand. We were once kissing at the door. We were once running through the sand, but we don't do that anymore. We were
2: once. Watching leaves turn and fall But we don't do that anymore I recall always going weak Each time you'd brush against my skin
1: More than I could ever stand. Couldn't resist our attraction. Even now, can't say I can. We were one,
2: we
1: enchanted lovers. Warm thoughts of growing old. But in time, our our hearts hearts grew colder, colder, bringing enchantment to a close. We were once, we
2: were once, the greatest
1: lovers. We were once. The best of friends. We were ones Made for each other. But now all that is at an end. We were
2: one
0: yeah, yeah, there you go. What? What? How did it fall apart? Like, what, what oh, made the distance? I'm not getting into that. You'd have to call a
1: couple of guys with jackets with wraparound arms to get through that. Mm. Yeah. On the next page, what is the price of love? You'll love this. What is the price of love? A haunted heart broken at the touch? What is the price of love? A stillborn start when passion's not enough. Saddened feelings, disembodied, past controlling, height of folly. Seductive stress of courtly love, emotions tortured, lashed by lust. Can't you see that trembling realm called ecstasy? Can't we be so overwhelmed? Our souls slip free. Wants and longings thrust asunder, hearts too lonely left in wonder, broken dreams with souls departed, broken spirits broken hearted. What is the price of love? A haunted heart broken at the touch, redemptions seldom just, yet so foolish we start. We fools
0: who ask too much,
1: what is the price of love?
0: It strikes me that in poetry, a lot of times you get to say things that you're not yet ready to say out loud in a different way. But somehow in poetry, you can veil it in enough prose and rhyme and layering that... The meaning is obscured just enough that it's maybe, it's very personal, but maybe just a little bit removed from telling a secret or a feeling that you can't quite make the words for.
1: Well, you could. That's why it's there. Most of what I've written is the exterior me. I think most, you know, it's the stuff that, events have produced hmm. that I'm dealing with either personal events or social events. And when it comes to anything really deep, um, I can't really recall anything. I don't think I necessarily go that far out of fear. <laughs> the
0: fear of what?
1: Of losing control. You know, I think everybody operates on a certain control mechanism. Right. You push the boundaries up to the point where you know you can bring yourself back. And if you go beyond that point, there's no boundaries. You have no clue where you're going to end up. Right. And I can't think of anything I've done or written that has gone beyond that point. Other than going to Europe on my own, that was a definite going beyond the pale. And I'm amazed that my parents let me go. There was no backup plan other than periodically I'd ask for money from what I had saved from the military and they would send it to American Express at a particular city. It would wait for me and then I'd show up wherever I was and claim it and continue on my journeys. I started out in Britain, and then I went to Holland and Spain, and my dad's side of the family came from near Budapest in uh, Hungary. Hungary, yeah. And I went to Budapest for about a week, and it was right before Christmas. I was amazed how these Hungarians would dress up to go shopping. I mean, at the time in seventy, the end of seventy-three, this was still a communist country. And yet they were just dressing up like, this is Christmas, we're going to have fun. Oh, wow. And it was really sweet to see all these people going shopping for gifts. There were a bunch of boutiques along the Danube River that were brightly lit and very welcoming. And I bought a couple of things that... uh, I was sent to family members, and I had no clue about how to speak Hungarian, but most of them remembered German from when they were part of Austria-Hungary. Mm. And so I got through in my broken German. Bekalfa-diesen, you know, how much is this? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was you know, befielkosta Um It was a wonderful experience. Then I went to Scandinavia to a couple of trips. I had a girlfriend in Holland that I almost stayed. Wow. I almost stayed in Holland. But my mom wrote me a letter, and then I called on the phone that my dad was going in the hospital, and I was near the end of what was supposed to be my
0: length of journey.
1: And she said, yeah, I want you home. You know, dad's going to the hospital. And I came home and was there, and... It was the most minor thing, whatever it was that he was doing. <sighs> and I'm going, why am I here? He said, well, we miss you. You know, you were in the service for four years. And we only caught you a couple of times on leave. And now you've been gone for three months and and we, we need, wanted you home. I'm going, I had a girlfriend back there. I was going to stay. She says, we were afraid of that.
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So there's a talk you know, about meddling mother,
1: you know the knife gets placed in the you know in the back of there, and
0: oh, but, man uh, oh well, so that could have been a whole different trajectory for your life.
1: I have no clue what trajectory that would have been
0: Wow, now tell me more about your father and mother. what were they like?
1: Dad was a salesman he popped around between companies. He always made sure we had enough between the two of them, but it was never a lot. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, he had to ask for help from his brothers. He had a very large family. In fact, both sides were excess of seven kids. And my dad's family, he was like, out of his line of kids, he was the second from the end. And he had a sister who was the last one. And he had older brothers that were 20, 30 years old when he was born. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So grandma must have been something else. (laughs) (laughs) And then my mom's side, they had about seven kids or so. Each side had somebody who died in their teens or early 20s. Mom had a couple of brothers and two sisters and she was right in the middle but the thing with my mom and dad is he was born 29 december of 17 and she was born january 1st of 18. wow so two different years three days apart oh wow yeah huh so their philosophy was similar the outer planets don't move that much right And that's spiritual things Yeah. So spiritually...
0: So they were very similar in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But the other stuff...
0: Both very Capricorn, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hard
0: working. Did pull your weight?
1: He did a lot better than I did.
0: Well, it seems like you were cut from a different cloth than he was. He was a singer. Oh, really? Yeah, he was a singer
1: from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He sang in school. He was actually on some of the local radio stations. No way. Yeah. And was looking after he got out of World War II, he was looking to use his GI Bill to, to follow up. He was going to go to USC or something like that, and they didn't accept him. Mm. And he allowed the first no to stifle him. Mm. And you can't do that. That's just the introductory hello, you know. Yeah,
0: that's the, yeah, you got to at least do 100, 200 no's and you got to keep going. Do you think that that decision or that letting that part of himself go, do you think that affected how he saw you or how he treated you?
1: I can't say. I think it had an effect of how he felt about himself. Right. As far as taking chances okay i've got one older and two younger brothers and i think between the four of us we look at taking chances differently mm-hmm. the lady i married was a second born and i'm a second born and in some ways second borns are going to have similar outlooks yeah my older brother married a firstborn firstborns are always the pathfinders yeah The second born will look at them and see how the parents treat them. You're getting into trouble again, so I'm not going (laughs) to do that anymore. I'm going to go this other way. Yeah. And then the third born looks at that and going, I'm going to sit this one out. (laughs) (laughs) So where you are in the pecking order definitely affects your outlook on things. And uh, being a second born... It gave me an opportunity to see, you know, what could befall if you if I act a particular way without having to go through it myself, which helps a lot.
0: So you didn't not pursue your dreams, but do you think that maybe played into you not taking the camera assistant role because it wasn't paid? It wasn't.
1: That was just a very superficial decision that uh, I didn't want to have to go through the having two jobs and only getting paid for one. But I wasn't looking beyond my nose, and that was a very foolish decision on my part. The different jobs I took were jobs that would continue. I had a couple of fill-in jobs, but most of my jobs were a number of years, like being in the studios. Um, I was a postman for five years. I was in com delivery service for 12 years so it was very rare for me to have a job that didn't go a number of years but it didn't give me the opportunity to like say go out for interviews for acting the stuff I was doing you have to be there there's no it's not like waiting tables and, right and depending on tips and say gee boss I can't make it I've got an interview for a movie yeah hey Sam can you cover my shift yeah all right. of that, you know, and those guys are in the same position you are. You're covering for each other. And so it's expected. My makeup is I can't live that without certain guarantees of what's coming tomorrow and having uh, and having the medical paid for and, and the insurance and da, da, da. Oh, and,
0: I see. Yeah.
1: I can't live on the edge of a limb all the time when, you know, I'm just hoping that things work out. Yeah. And being an actor, man, that's all that is. Yeah. And I figure my character is such where <laughs> even in a structured job situation, as you can hear from my writing, I'm still out there. Right. And yeah. I need to feel that my bread and butter is guaranteed so that I can do other things mentally or musically
0: right so a sense of you need to feel a sense of material safety before you can right. cut loose creatively right yeah. Right. do you feel like that's held you back at all
1: well either i'd have made it or i'd have died one or the other
2: <laughs> good point
0: <laughs> good point point. and
1: who knows what things would have to be traded of how i felt about myself mm-hmm. in between right everything's a trade-off well we're gonna do this for you but uh you're gonna have to do something for me and i'm going hold on there partner yeah this only this this thing only goes so far (laughs) and uh, if you want something like what you're asking for you're gonna have to go to somebody else Mm -hmm. and i don't even want to be in the situation where it comes up right it's crazy but everybody's got their trade-offs some people they have no boundaries. And everything is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Well, I just don't feel like getting grabbed.
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: We're all in our own world. And how we each have to look in the mirror and every morning after plicking out the gray hairs. and.
0: Mm. Yeah, I got a few now. I actually just, much rather be gray than bald, but that's, that's happening true. too. Yeah, and it's interesting because I never wanted to work the kind of hours that i saw other audio engineers working because all of the ones that i knew were divorced and estranged from their children because of the 90 hour 100 hour work weeks and all nights and things like that but i think that that prevented me from the regularity in that profession that would have led to the kind of credits that would eventually, you know, you work on a hundred things and the thing you don't think is going anywhere. You even think of it as a thing you did between the things That's right. that breaks. It's the hot new thing. And then all of a sudden you're the guy who did.
1: That's right. Yeah. You never know. I feel like I'm contradicting what I just said. That's why you have to try everything you can within your own structure. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are those who don't have a structure and they just try everything anywhere. Yeah. And eventually something's going to click that's like the old expression. If you ask a hundred girls out, one of them's eventually going to say, sure. <laughs>
2: <But> <laughs> well, then... <laughs> after the third or
0: fourth time, I mean, from some of the stories I've heard from grandparents, you know, well, you know, I just kept at it. And eventually she said, yes, <laughs>
1: yeah. that's asking the same girl.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that too. You yeah. Know? So I, but I think in a sense for me, learning how to make it in creative anything requires a certain amount of soul work. So you are exploring those inner spaces in one form or another when you're creating. And in order to even take the risk to do something like that, you're pushing yourself. Yeah. I mean, Sparky's burgers, the sessions we did for that was a risk for you. That was a big leap. Once we got into it,
1: I wasn't leaping very far, I think. You and I knew where we wanted to end up. Yeah. And what the sound was that we were trying to achieve. It wasn't
0: like, hey, let's just book some studio time and see who shows up.
1: No, no. Yeah. Yeah, when we got there, we knew what we wanted. It was just whether the people we had hired would produce it. And it was wonderful.
0: Yeah. But I mean, in a sense, you've done this with a few things. I mean, and some of them worked and some of them didn't. Some of them worked but didn't. And, you know, I think of the companies that you've co-written in and invested in that.
1: Oh, man, the game thing. That was my fault. I didn't allow myself enough freedom of mind to go further than I did. Mm. And it required that. And I I just didn't.
0: How so? First of all, what role were you in and how did you need
1: to take it further? I was supposed to basically write the history of what was going on in the game. Mm -hmm. And I got to a certain point. And then we had a disagreement as far as where is it going at that point on.
0: Where is the storyline of the, the story
1: going, yeah. And I just couldn't get further than that. We had a different appreciation of how that was going to go. And what I should have done was just write what I wanted to write, and either you like it or you don't, but I'd have something down.
0: Then you could refine or have an up- aha epiphany, or you know, he could have an epiphany and go, it's great. Or, you oh, know, yeah. Yeah, or he yeah. could show you, and you'd be like... Okay, well, let me change this one character, and then...
1: I let it defeat me, and uh, that was a huge mistake. Yes, folks, we are capable of mistakes, sometimes bigger than others, and that'll end up being a song somewhere.
0: I think that's a very valuable reflection, because, I mean, we're here talking about being sort of in the middle of a family of people who've learned to not take the risks... And being in the birth order where you're like, I need some guarantee and not taking those risks, those times where you didn't accept the internship or the times where you missed, you didn't swing, you know? And I, that's really, I mean, I think back to the times of my life where I have those, God, they're painful. Yeah. I was on a date with a girl who I was madly in love with. And I didn't realize it was a date because I was, so, <laughs> <laughs> she had just gotten single. And I thought, well, you know, there's that rebound period. I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy. And I had myself so worked up, it, you know, into this idea of what I should and shouldn't do that I missed a perfect opportunity. And I don't know how that relationship would have ended up, but it broke my heart.
1: I had a an at-bat at something like that once. A lady who had just broken up with a friend of my brother's. She had told my brother that she was available. And it had been a couple of months, I guess, since she had broken up with this guy. And we went to the drive-in. And I was too respectful.
0: Yeah, same here.
1: (laughs) And we didn't go out again because I felt like I'd screwed myself up so bad that time
0: what if my brother's best friend is somehow hurt by me picking up
1: there yeah there's uh, well there's that or anything i do that ends up in the gossip column everybody in our little society is going to know about it there's that Mm, right and then she ends up meeting a, a cop and they've been married 40 years or whatever
0: so she was the keeper type
1: However or she that was going to
0: keep whoever it was.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. Whatever the, however that was going to flow. And I guess they've been happy. They've been together. So, you know, Oh, well, Oh,
0: well, yeah. I mean, that's, what's unique about life from a bit of a spiritual sense is we seem to find ourselves in certain arenas of our life in a sort of groundhog day. Yeah. Like a theme in your life, weaves together and and get to the point where it happens enough times, you know, 10 years apart, and you could almost predict the next sentence that's going to happen in the story. Because life does that. Life hands you things and says, okay, well, you didn't get the test last time. We're going to serve you the pop quiz again and see what you do with it. And it's like every time that I played it too safe, that is the time that I regret. So it's kind of cliche, but you don't regret the things that you did. People say at the end of your life, you tend to regret the things that you didn't do.
1: Oh, I don't know. I think I'm pretty regretful about 50%.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is it the cliche doesn't hold true? It goes both ways, huh?
1: There are a lot of things I, uh, you know, when those signposts come roaring at you and Rod Serling is staring at you going, (laughs) it's your call mate you know i have played it too careful most of the time yeah but i have no idea how that would have worked out it, maybe i would have done terribly i have no clue
0: it reminds me of well i'm not going to mention who was someone we both met uh, maybe i'll have him on the podcast one day but i've certainly heard stories of people who live sort of the other way and they're a bit happy-go-lucky about things and somehow it just tends to work out. I don't know. Like, I don't know how it would be because like you said, you kind of got to stay authentic to you and there's certain things about me that I value and cherish and there's that turns coming at you and you can make two mistakes. You could make the wrong turn, you could make the right turn, or you could just make no turn and then crash into the (laughs) the fork. (laughs) And I've certainly done my fair share of those too. What do they call that? Uh, those yellow barrels? That yeah, that have the water in those splash. Yeah,
1: between the off-ramp and the freeway. It's free not way. always a
0: barrel. Sometimes it's K-rail. Yeah. Yeah. You end up there. Yeah, either uh, that or just looping around in the roundabout endlessly for yeah. till you get old. Yeah, they call that the gore point.
1: Yes. The gore point where, you know, if you don't make a, a decision left or right, you're going to get gored.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: So that's uh, very descriptive of what life can be if you don't watch out.
0: Yeah. It, you know, I mean, you're, how old are you now? I'm what, 72
1: and nine months. so I'm closer to 73 now. But mama lets me cross the street and, and <laughs> go to go to the 711 and buy your gin and cigarettes so
0: <laughs> she'll let you she won't let you go to Europe but she will let you go to 711. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's progress. A big shout out to the Design Science Studio, revolutionary artists who are committed to making a world that works for 100% of light. Take a moment to join us on Substack languageofcreativity.substack and consider contribution if you like our show. You know what we didn't talk about? Let's talk about The Last Generation on Earth.
1: Oh, goodness. Last Generation on Earth didn't start out that way. It was called I'm So Tickled. The title being sarcastic, ironic. And then when I was talking to you about Throwing that in to build it into a kind of a climate danger poet and ended up being a song. Then it changed into the last generation on Earth. We re- released that on Earth Day, didn't we?
0: I can't remember, but we did. We sent We've, it to about 50 different environmental organizations and right. the hopes that it would get some traction. And eventually, about a year later, earthsongs.world picked it up and shared it. And it's gotten a fair number of views, but I still think it's something that you'd like to get out there more. You, it's on your channel, on your YouTube channel, The Soundtrack of My Dream.
1: Soundtrack of My Dreams.
0: That's a pretty provocative title, The Last Generation on Earth.
1: Yeah, figure we're about there. I don't know if our species is going to live to the end of the century unless it's underground. Mm. And who knows what the forces of nature would do there if you're trapped in a capsule of something that's supposed to be concrete in the crust of the planet, which is fluctuating.
0: You had said this, you wrote this poem, and originally it was a different poem. and It was mostly the same
1: thing. In the end, it had a, I'm so tickled. By the stewards, I can't believe they're doing what they're doing. And it was all kind of an offhand jab. Whereas with Last Generation, it goes right to the point.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty pointed. And I think that's the thing that is difficult about the world is that, you know, as you've talked about wars and history and all those things, it's really hard to get large groups of people to take action on something that is so... Complicated. I mean, it's how do you boil that down? I mean, if you had a message that you were trying to give to people, it's
1: complicated in the many pieces that are evolved, but it's actually quite simple because of what it is that's affecting those different pieces. It's the same thing. You've got global warming. Every successive year in the last 10 years has been considerably warmer than the previous one. And It doesn't look like anybody's got the desire to do something essential to maintain safety. I just watched a three-piece thing on Frontline on PBS on how Lee Reynolds, he was CEO of Exxon. Before he became CEO, the previous CEO had gotten the scientists of Exxon to check out what all the drilling they were doing. This is in the mid-70s what kind of a footprint it would be leaving on the planet. Yeah. And they said that it was going to leave a considerable warming footprint and that we only had 50, 60 years to do something about it. And if nothing was done, it would we'd end up looking like Venus in 100 years. <sighs> so, um, you know, you have a, a loss of your atmosphere, basically.
0: Devastating, like impossible to live through.
1: And this guy who came in, he looked at that and he said, well, we can't do anything because it's going to inhibit our earnings to the... uh, What? It's going to inhibit our earnings to the stockholders.
0: Oh, God.
1: And he put it off and he created a joint kind of group of all the other large oil manufacturers. And they developed the idea, this is using the PR people who were defending nicotine for the tobacco companies. Wow. And they said, let's say that all the statistics aren't in yet, and we really can't be sure of what's going to happen in 10 or 20 years. Mm. And he just said, Sounds it, this familiar. isn't everybody who says that things are going to blazes. This is just... These guys are saying that. Well, these guys happens to be 98.5% of the world's scientists. Right. But because of the way American media portrays any subject, even though you have 98% of people saying, this is what the science says here, and a percentage and a half over here says something different, they portray it as being 50-50. It's
0: 50-50, Yeah.
1: And so people have no idea, they don't know who to believe because, and you have a network like Murdoch's Fox and it's to their advantage for their monetary base to say, give me your advertising and we'll run with this and we'll be rich and we don't care what comes out on the other end because we'll be dead anyway, who cares? and plundered, the rich devour and waste, the poor thrown crumbs for lifelines, just temptations, nothing's changed. The cycles still all continue, sex-frosted lies in media The top one corporate welfare, while the rest must pay the freight. I'm so amazed, I can't stand it. Fukushima kills the ocean's worth. New pandemics swarm all around us. We'll be the last generation on earth.
0: Wow. How is that even like, I understand being amoral, but it's like there's zero, I guess self-interest would be like, well, I'll be dead anyway. Like there's zero concern at all for, wow. Yeah, you do. And you kind of hit that frustrated nail on the head in your song for sure. Yeah. And, and it's like speaking to deaf ears in a sense. It's like Yeah. I guess we're just all crisis fatigued, you know. Well, that's what they're
1: hoping for. That's just like with everything else. They figure if they just run the table long enough, everybody will forget about it.
0: I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. If you're looking for the name of the yeah. executive or we can find the front line and link it. So You had this idea for a tune and you went to Jim Jeffrey and you and he co-wrote the music part. Yeah, I
1: I had the tune pretty much in, but Jim refined it and I did the lyric as it had to be adjusted a couple of times, not much word here or there. And I sang it because I couldn't afford to get anybody else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you did a nice job with it. And we did a video to kind of I took inspiration from What About Us, Michael Jackson, but getting news footage and stock footage, we actually got to think about half of the footage was from Greenpeace. They licensed it to, to be able to make this montage style video because it felt like that the music needed something visual to really drive home the intensity of what's going on i mean the to watch the amazon rainforest burning from a helicopter is just mind-boggling it's the lungs of the world how well and that,
1: that's it if you know that going up front what in blazes is justifying what you're doing how, how do you figure that you know if you're destroying the it's like the old vietnam thing what uh, we're destroying the village to save it no, 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 no. Messed up logic. No, you destroy the rainforests and clear cut the Northwest at your own risk. Well, not your own risk, our own risk. If you're doing that just for the shareholders, you're just looking for the next quarterly bottom line. And what about the generations to come?
0: It doesn't make any sense.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: Yeah. It's like the foxes running the hen house. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you have kids. They're mostly grown. One's 36. The other's just turned 30.
0: Yeah, close in age to my brother. Have your kids inherited any artistic
1: inclinations? I thought my son would. I remember when he was very young, I'd put him in front of the piano and he'd start banging on it, but it actually made sense. He was just working off of ear. Mm -hmm. And I thought he'd go that way himself with a keyboard, but... After a certain age, you had no inclination towards that.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I was all ear and ended up probably because, I don't know what kept me interested in it, probably because my mom played and she had instruments around. And for me, I I don't know, I never fancied myself as very good at writing words. And so for me, the music was how I got my emotions conveyed. And uh, it's interesting because now I can write words and I'm almost 42. And it took me till I was in my late 30s to be able to write a lyric. And the reason was everything that I ever wanted to really say wasn't okay in some form or another. I had so much of a voice in my head telling me what was expected, what was politically correct, or what was religiously approved of, or what feelings were okay to have, who I thought I should be as a person. And it's interesting how stifling that was, but not musically. It was almost like a, it supercharged me musically, but lyrically I just couldn't, I think it came down to, I wrote this song. I was like eight or nine years old or 10 years old. And I'd watched captain planet, the cartoon wow. show, you know, where it's like superheroes, but they all unite together to form Captain Planet and save the world from global warming and CEOs, fat cats who are you know, bulldozing the rainforest. So I wrote this song about, oh, it's bad. (laughs) I forget how the rest of it goes. Something, 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 you know, save the rainforest or whatever. (laughs) And I remember I had recorded it and I showed it to my dad or I played it for my dad and he says to me, Ah, oh, son, rainforest is just jungle and people need to cut it down to make farms. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was like a part of me shut down like, oh, that's not okay. I can't
2: mm-hmm. talk
0: about that. I can't mm-hmm. write about that. And certainly, I mean, lots of people have written about this, but certainly in regard to being a young adolescent person and sexuality in religious circles was very taboo. So, and I was kind of like you in the sense that like you described being not really taking those risks that you could take or not like kind of like putting a self-limiting effect on yourself. I think I dated less. I think I didn't get close to the dates that I had physically, because there was this like, in church, we used to do the A-frame hug, you know, where you hug to the side so that your body parts don't touch or <laughs> or this, you you put your arms out really far and you just sort of hug oh, around the shoulders. God. And so, I would edit, you know, I would edit myself in these social situations. And it was so weird. But when I think of like singers, you know, rock stars, I think of like Keith Richards, or I think of <laughs> uh, Steven Tyler and there's a swagger to them there's this they have very open sexuality to them mm. and you know it was i was repressed and i was repressing myself because it was so much about the it, it affected every facet of my life and how i carried myself my body what i would write about regardless of my morals regardless of you know who i Didn't choose to sleep with forever, you know? And that's what's weird to me is like how something like that can just truncate who you are in a way. Like it changed my life for sure. Certain decisions I made or didn't make in my life, I know I would make much differently now. Being the person that I've done the work to be now, there's so many situations I look back and, you know, I might have done it differently, but. I guess I can't look back and say, darn, you know, I wish I would have been that person because that's my journey and that's who I became. And it certainly shaped me in some really amazing ways. But I also kind of just reflect back to that idea of like not being able to write the lyrics and just go, wow, like where, what else in my life am I missed out on? What other parts of my life have I been meant to be or to express or to experience that I've held back or, or not explored?
1: There's kind of like, An astrology of society that you've got whatever the societal norm of the day is that you grow up under. And then you have the societal norm of your family, whatever they think is going on. Yeah. And then you've got the societal norm of your peers, which may or may not also include a couple of your family, but, you know, the people who you feel free enough to talk to, you know, hoping they won't coming down on you yeah and then you've got from all that you set up how you feel and sometimes that just leaves you in a box unless you feel so strongly about things that you need to break
0: out exactly
1: but uh you know that's what faces you and you know that's pretty difficult at times i think i probably succumbed to that pressure more than once And sometimes I've just ignored it, that it was any pressure at all. I grew up with a kind of a feeling that if I stuck my head out past a certain point, there was going to be a hammer.
0: Yeah, I can
1: relate to that. And I'm always looking around to see, okay, where's that coming from? And I was never completely sure about it. And maybe I could have gotten away with more things, but the fear of that hammer coming down, or always being up against the wall that you can't get past. Um, there's some kind of a control ex- exerted, at least that I felt. I've talked to my brothers and, and friends of mine, and they say they're always hitting certain levels in their own lives where they can't go beyond a certain point.
0: Yeah, sort of like a glass ceiling or a yeah. invisible wall. So. Uh, There used to be those motivational posters. Someone made a demotivational poster. And it's got, you know, it's got a bunch of people and somebody's obviously trying really hard at being great at something. And it says, the tallest blade of grass gets cut first.
1: (laughs) Yeah, cut first. Because once that's done, everybody else is jamming through.
0: Oh, but yeah, yeah, you're right. There's, There's certain limits that we have and... I like to play with the idea that a lot of them are society, a lot of them are conventional. It's what the group collectively believes is possible, not possible. And this could, like you said, it could include your family. So if you come from a family where there are CEOs in your family and people who've been to Harvard or things like that, it's you know it's possible. You know it's not impossible. It's something within your realm of doable. It's conceivable. And therefore, your personal relationship to that is somewhat Wider, even if you don't consider yourself as smart i think
1: i can be proven wrong on this probably am but i've always felt that firstborn people have the most success because they're in a position of having to set the boundaries themselves Mm. and they're not following in anybody's footsteps maybe a parent's footstep if they knew the story at the time that they were enacting it but the firstborn is always the boundary setter and when he realizes that it's all on him he said hey okay i'm out of here right watch my dust and then it's up to the second and third and fourth to to figure out whether they can use the lessons of the firstborn
0: it's interesting that our parental figures have that much power over us in our later years yeah you know in my case i am the firstborn but I always felt like I lived in my parents' shadows in terms of success. And like I said, you know, our cultural environment as a family growing up in church, it caused me just in my own personality to become self-limiting. So I realized when I turned 18, I was like, dang, my parents are cool. Hmm. I could have had way more fun. (laughs) (laughs) I was the kind of person who say, well, it's 930 and I got to be home by 10 o'clock. Did anyone say that? No, I said that, you know. I don't know what it was, but somehow that was my experience. That's probably what I love about hanging out with other creatives, because being around people who are more open-minded and and more free-spirited brings out that part of my personality in a way that I find really invigorating and helpful.
1: When you feel that those around you are the ones who have helped push out the boundaries, it gives you space to push your own out.
0: You mentioned the poetry group.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a situation where the way our meetings were set up, we'd meet once a month and eventually it was every other week. And we'd get together early afternoon and bring in work that we'd been working on that previous week or whatever, two weeks. And either it was completed stuff or it was partial stuff. We'd roll it around to everybody else and read it and see what the commentary would be. And most of it was pretty constructive, you know, about subject matter, about style, things like that. I used to tear them up a bit because in those meetings, I usually didn't have anything that I had brought in. I'd listen to what everybody else had, and then I'd kind of start on something myself. And it wouldn't be copying so much as something someone else had said or something in the style that they had done had opened up a window for me that oh well, what if i follow that along yeah and we'd have 10 or 12 people and we'd go around the table and he, i'm usually one of the first and he says well what have you got and i said well i don't have anything i'm, I'm just gonna hear and then i'll jot a few things down by the time they got back to me at the end because i'm listening to everybody and where they're going and how their styles had changed, that kind of thing. They'd finally get to me at the end, and John Gorm, the leader, he'd look at me and says, okay, Jack, what have you got? And definitely to blow my own horn, I'd have something that would knock their socks off, and they knew I wrote it at that moment, you know, in that period, long enough for the thing to go around the table. And I'd throw something out there, Everybody's looking at me like, you just did that just now? And I'm going, yeah, well, you know, you saw me.
0: I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that was songwriting. Like, in a sense, everything's been done in pop music and everybody's remixing at this point. There's really not a lot of original room left within the 12-tone musical system to innovate. Not to say there's not innovation, but... In a sense, the various styles that are out there are offshoots of either things from before like jazz or like, you know, when Led Zeppelin started playing the blues and made it heavy metal rock and roll. And, you know, Steve Jobs said, good artists copy and great artists steal, right? Uh Yeah. So (laughs) I think in a sense, there's a talent in there, but there's also this sense of learning what it is that you're about and learning about what you're... Life is trying to say in this particular version of it, you know?
1: Wow. I try not to get that far out. Um,
0: Sorry, I don't have any joints. Yeah. Uh.
1: Learning what your life is trying to say. I'm just putting out what I feel in the moment and not trying to necessarily get beyond that, except for maybe something like uh, Last Generation on Earth. That's the longest reach I've ever done, I think. Well, you got it out there, it's on YouTube. I don't know if anybody's actually looking at it. I've had about 700 and something people listen to it. There was a good handful of comments early on. And after that, it's like nobody wants to leave anything. So I don't know if we've done something wrong in the setup where it's not being presented or they just, oh, okay, and then go on. So,
0: I wanted to ask you where Gateway of Heartache came from.
1: Uh, Another blonde.
0: (laughs) It's always a blonde.
1: (laughs) But I have to tell you, my ex-wife, she's a redhead. That's asking for it. (laughs) (laughs) I was married for 13 years, and I was responsible for a good deal of the problems there. And she married a guy a couple of three years later that uh, they've been together ever since. I'm glad that worked out. Um, What song are we talking about now? Gateway of Heartache. So one of the first ladies I met after that, it was a few years on, was out here in, in Santa Clarita at a, a Reiki, you know, a Reiki hands-on healing stuff I'd gotten an interest in. And this lady was part of it. And I ended up learning Reiki and got all three books. And, I
0: did not know that.
1: Yeah, that was like right around 2000, late 90s into 2000. And all that mystical oriental philosophy, which is kind of cool. I think so. She was a divorcee with two kids. And my two kids were younger and older of her two kids. It was kind of weird how my two kids age-wise kind of bookended her two kids. We were together for a year. We didn't live together, but we went out and hung together and stuff like that. And sometimes our kids would play together, but that didn't work out. And what a lot of people don't know there was at some point I was actually living in my car.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yeah, for about six years.
0: That's a long time.
1: But I was working and I was paying child support and eventually things improved. But it's been kind of touch and go. It's been crazy. But I was still writing. Nothing to keep the juices going, like living in your car for an extended time. And, and in fact, I, it was during that period that I put my poetry book together. So. It had its benefits.
0: You're not the only person I know who lived in their car for an extended period of a couple years or more.
1: Just before I cut the rope to go drifting, I went into the mall and got a St. Christopher's medal.
0: That's the one that's supposed to be protective.
1: Yeah, protects travelers. And that night I said, well, God, it's just you and me. I'll try to take care of the small stuff if you take care of everything else. And so far that's worked out.
2: Mm. Wow. And
1: sometimes I can't always take care of the small stuff, but he seems to extend his reach once in a while when necessary. So I don't care for religion per se, but I feel like I've been taken care of, especially through a couple of heart attacks. So
0: Yeah. Gateway of heartache.
1: Gateway of heartache was being out on the street living in my car and being with that blonde lady off and on and the frustration of not being able to move off of point zero to get anything else accomplished, even though at the time I was working, but I couldn't afford an apartment or anything, or a room even and uh
2: Wow.
0: Wow.
1: It's weird. It's weird. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember when you sang that to me and you were going through a particular thing that was also pretty difficult, And but just it leaped out at me as something that needed to get recorded. Yeah. Reminded me of when we were looking up Johnny Cash and getting reacquainted with his material, this thing he did with Rick Rubin later on in his life where Mm -hmm. he covered Nine Inch Nails which was a very unlikely cover for Johnny Cash. And he did this cover of the song called Hurt. We also listened to Walk the Line and some uh, Ring of Fire. And it was really cool to go into that mode musically to basically do what was the sound like because the idea is hopefully we can get someone to, to play this or license this or use it. But I think more important than that, it was just important that you got to sing it and that you got to record it and put it out there for people to hear I had no idea that you had lived in your car. Yeah. I did not know that.
1: Yeah. Well, now everybody's going to know it. Thanks, (laughs) Stephen.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting is like you and I both know that we live in a world where it is not easy to afford the basics.
1: And it's getting even worse now.
0: So, and you know, I remember after the housing crash. Oh, yeah how many people were living in their car. And there was like sort of this silent large group of people who were homeless, but you don't want to use the word homeless. I, Uh, I prefer the term nomadic. I I had a friend who went through that experience and you know, he made it like, Hey, my commute to work is great. Do you remember
1: (laughs) on Oh three things were going pretty bad as well? Yeah. A couple of years after nine 11 and I wrote something for me it was an update of buddy can you spare a dime
0: hmm I'm not familiar that who is that
1: the buddy can you spare a dime that was an old it was one of uh, Bing Crosby's first hits in the thank you in yeah. the 30 okay and this isn't a song I could never figure out a tune for it but I call it buddy can I tap you for a buck <laughs> asking for cash is now this is 2003 in September asking for cash is a bummer Panhandling off-ramps sure sucks. I'm a guy like any other more than just down on my luck. Buddy, can I tap you for a buck? None thought my firm would go under. That NAFTA competition struck. Didn't know they'd got our number when suddenly our number was up. Buddy, can I tap you for a buck? My dot-com interests scurried when Wall Street hit its flurry. My wife is awfully worried. We just lost the house. Maybe next goes the spouse. Union wage, now offshore dollar a day. That corporate free trade muck trades all our freedoms away. All that repo publican bunk, yet they're never jailed for their junk. Wish I had a piece of Congress since my excess tax holds it up. Now we've got all this war stress. Where were you when 9-11 struck? Hey, buddy, can I tap you for a buck?
0: Excellent. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for sharing your poetry and your life with us in this interview. It's been wonderful to get to know you more, and I already know you pretty well, so <laughs> I'm really glad that we kept taping. Is there anything else that you wanted to share? By Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're there again, aren't we?
1: <laughs> There's my poetry has been placed on... Jacksongs.com. My, Jacksongs.com. Yeah.
0: And then you are on YouTube, the soundtrack of my dreams, and Spotify. And by the time this is releasing your album, The Clear Leak Sessions, your EP will be out with your jazz standards that we recorded pre-pandemic as well as a piece that you wrote called gateway of heartache
1: gateway of heartache i'd like to read something before we go it's a poem i put out back in 1971 so i was still in the military it's called a time to write this is for you guys thinking about doing that to write is to be to act is but to be seen. To be seen is just a passing moment, scarcely a pebble's ripple in time, a rapid, continuous thing. But to write is to give ideas, ideas that live on their own, keeping pace with a flowing stream of time, reaching out, or immortality.
0: Jack T. Layton, thanks for being on the Language of Creativity podcast. Please check out his work at his website, jacksongs.com, J-A-X-S-O-N-G-S.com. And we hope to get out many, many more in the near future. Thanks for trusting me with your beautiful collaborations and hopefully we can get more of them to music and to recording.
1: Thank like you, Stephen. It's been an adventure the whole way through. I've really appreciated your helping me out with all this stuff.
0: Please check out languageofcreativity.substack.com and please send us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, share it with your friends. And that will help others find us as well. And I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast.
1: Locked in the gateway of heartache Locked in this hell gate from having you